I'm not going to take a lot of time introducing you, Leroy. The hell with that noise. You're a member of our club. Leroy is from Oklahoma. He's from the university out there. He has the requisite degrees. He's written the requisite number of books and articles. He has spoken to us twice. And by God, when a guy's spoken to us twice and we invite him back the third time, it's because we like him and because we think he's got something to say. Leroy is going to speak to us tonight on the Civil War in today's perspective. Leroy Fisher. Thank you, Berlin. Fellow roundtablers, I feel very much on this occasion the spirit of Eisen, Otto Eisenschimmel. And he tells me that I should get immediately into my speech. But if I followed his directions, he would not quite like it either because he had quite a bit of the rebel in him, you know. And uh, so I'm not going to follow Otto's directions on this occasion uh, in getting immediately into my speech. I want to ruminate for several minutes, if I may, if you will uh, indulge me uh, this. Uh, 25 years ago this last January, I came up here to the round table in the university club and had a great experience. My first talk before an adult audience, 25 <coughs> years of age, just was a great experience. It was a devastating experience uh, also. I've had wonderful fellowship with quite a number of you ever since. Several of the people are missing then, Otto, Genial, rebel that he always was, a man of many sides, Newt Farr, a lovable person, and then Alfred Stern. I, I, I stayed with Alfred uh, in his uh, fine suite uh, overlooking the lake uh, when I was here 25 years ago last uh, January. It was quite a change going from his apartment to the United States Army and then overseas for the invasion, but of, of Europe, that is. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, this is the way it was. And, and uh, uh, you men individually, the handshakes here at the beginning, and I would have been uh, with you all much sooner, except uh, the, the, the Fishers had a reunion. Maury and I uh, uh, got into the local bar down the... Uh, Hall here, and uh, we barely made it here in, in time. Uh, we're going to continue this, Maury. Uh, <laughs> it's the fine interest of this club, of this fellowship, that has kept us going over the years. You make the study of a civil war worthwhile. Uh, I could never have stayed with it if it were not for the encouragement of this group and similar groups in the United States in this area. And this is the way many of us feel who try to make our living uh, working with history and uh, specializing in this uh, middle period of the uh, 19th uh, century. I want to commend you especially on what you are doing to push at the frontier of knowledge in the Civil War. You would expect me to consider this important, and I do consider it most, most important. 
All else there is is a rehash. Well, we all need the rehash. This is uh, uh, great, to, great to read. But we also like to find out what's new in the Civil War. And this is where you men are, are, are doing such a wonderful job. Uh, Lloyd Miller putting up some money and uh, Verlin here and uh, others of you, I really don't know how this all goes uh, with the round table here, but um, uh, uh, this is most commendable. Uh, this is a fine scholarship. There ought to be a second and there ought to be a third and there ought to be a fourth. And, where, and wherever you're getting this money uh, for the Susquecentennial Commission is not state appropriated. Some more of it might be TAP, Verlin, and I'm really speaking with all of you, uh, it ought to be tapped uh, uh, for more uh, of this type of activity because this is where we hear the good news about the Civil War. This is what keeps us going. This is what uh, uh, keeps our interest uh, moving in it. This is what keeps it from growing dead. Well, so much for these words of uh, uh, high esteem and praise and uh, the warm fellowship that I felt for this group uh, over the 25 years that I have known uh, these spirits no longer with us, but in a sense, very much in our midst. And uh, those of you, Lloyd, first time, 25 years ago, Hal, 25 years ago, Ralph Newman, 25 years ago, and several of the rest of you who, who date back to that uh, uh, early beginning of the round table when I came in January of 1943. Brethren, the Civil War has captured the imagination and the interest of the people of the United States to a degree and with a force not matched by any other war or phase of the nation's history. This conflict this war of a century ago, a little more than a century ago, looms large as a climax of American history, and I consider it our mountaintop experience. Examination of most of the currents of our national life show that they led to this war. The complex causes of this war are the main themes of the country's political, economic, and social life to the time of the war. And then the great problems and movements in American life since the war have come primarily from its dislocations and from its aftermath. And I think these are best illustrated by the current emphasis on increasing civil liberties. For slightly more, than a century, the American Civil War has served the United States as a major spiritual resource. As today, the Civil War was a period of dynamic, rapid change. The federal government emerged supreme from the Civil War and has continued a centralization of authority to the present that really commenced in that conflict of little more than a century ago. This meant, of course, more than the fact that a single state or group of states could no longer secede. I suggested to Ross Barnett several years ago, uh, the recent governor of Mississippi, that, uh, well, you, you speak a good line, governor, why don't you try secession? He says, 
hell, are you mad, man? Uh, uh, he says, we can't get a buy, a buy with it. We're occupied uh, here, the National Guard all around us and the Air Guard and so on. And he says, we can't revolt. We would if we could, but we, but we, uh, uh, but we can't any longer. Uh, so even Southerners, uh, the white leadership groups in the South, admit that they cannot revolt, although the spirit is there to do it just as it was done uh, a century ago. Now, but more than this was settled, more than the question of individual allegiance, we'll never have another Robert E. Lee uh, walking the uh, floors of an Arlington. Uh, states' rights were likewise killed, uh, not only in the, uh, in the South, but they were killed in the North as well. This is important and the governors of both sections were largely, largely stripped of the powers they had before the Civil War. The northern governors were done in in terms of authority as well as the um, uh, southern governors. This happened because the federal government needed to make itself strong. This is the only way the federal government could win the Civil uh, War. The federal government took on war powers. It had to take them on. And if it had comprehensively applied these war powers, uh, we could have had a dictatorship. But Lincoln, uh, admirably enough, chose only to take on enough of these war powers to win the war and to restore the Union of States. Even the radical Republicans failed at their attempts to reduce the states to super counties and to control the judiciary and the executive branches of our federal government. Congress, the idea was to have Congress to operate the federal government uh, as the radical, Republic, radical Republicans desired. Yet somehow, this pre-war distribution of powers was never restored. With World War I, the federal government grew stronger. With World War II, the federal government grew, grew, grew stronger. And with uh, international commitments, what they were, uh, there was never a, an opportunity to go back to um, uh, the loose union of states that we had before the Civil War. Truly, the um, um, federal union became the American nation during the course of the Civil War. Now, President Lincoln did not want to issue the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, and it's a fact, of course, that the radical Republican, the, uh, re the radicals generally, the radical Republicans, the opposition branch of the Republican Party, uh, forced him into issuing it. In fact, uh, Lincoln was strictly opposed um, uh, to uh, emancipation by executive proclamation uh, or, in the beginning, certainly by an amendment to the Constitution. Now, Lincoln desired uh, gradual, compensated emancipation. He was an attorney. He wished to take this by easy stages. He was a legalist, a constitutionalist. He said, let's complete emancipation by 1900 in the United States. And then he said, let's colonize all Negroes outside the United States. Let's send groups back to Africa. Let's see that the colonization is orderly. Let's um, colonize them in Central America and uh, remove the Negroes from our midst. Now, if Lincoln is um, popularly considered the great emancipator, the reason is not that he planned it that way through his actions, but um, that his rather unrealistic deed uh, in proclaiming emancipation in the Confederacy, uh, set in motion a chain of events uh, in Missouri, 
West Virginia, five states all together, Maryland, Tennessee, and Louisiana, which caused this group of states to free their slaves by the time the war was over. What did his Emancipation Proclamation provide for? He said to Jeff Davis and to all loyal Confederates, I hereby declare your slaves free by proclamation as of January 1, 1863. And what did they say? The hell with it, Lincoln. No slaves went free. In January of 1865, finally, Congress submitted the 13th Amendment, the Emancipation Amendment, to the states. And uh, in the due course of events, uh, this was uh, ratified by enough of the states so that it became effective um, in December 1865. And Lincoln, before his assassination, rather reluctantly um, uh, signed this uh, um, uh, proclamation. Now, the late President Kennedy has been described as the Negro's best friend in the White House since Lincoln. Now, I hope that for the sake of the Negro and the nation, that he was a much better friend than Lincoln, and I frankly believe that he was. Now, President Lincoln <coughs> maintained that the Civil War was fought to preserve the Union of States and not to eliminate slavery. Now, as the war moved, it got out of hand in terms of this limited objective, and it developed into a contest against slavery. What did it become? It, become, it became a struggle for freedom. Now, if you look at freedom in the broadest sense, uh, it's unlimited. Uh, with this impulse to freedom, the Civil War became a revolution. It became far-reaching and uncontrollable. Now, this conflict of a century ago gave us a new concept, a new dimension of freedom in the United States. And as a result, uh, all people north and south, uh, one way or another, who had consented to slavery, uh, took on this new dimension of freedom. At the time of the Civil War, as Bruce Catton puts it, we were committed to the task of working uh, out a brotherhood of, for all men, a freedom broad enough that would encompass all races, all religions, a one-class citizenship. Now, this commitment was made a century ago, but it was made for today's generations as well. In fact, it, it was then made for all generations and uh, uh, it has been moving, sometimes with a lesser pace, sometimes at a more rapid pace as today ever since. Now, at this present moment, we are today in the midst of a civil liberties revolution that was unleashed a century ago. It came as a result of this civil war commitment. So it was then that this fraternal conflict of a century ago once and forever expanded the dimensions of American freedom. The spirit of the Civil War abolitionist, these people from Massachusetts, we have another one today, of course, um, uh, the, the spirit of the Civil War abolitionist uh, is very much in high repute in dynamic areas of American political and social order, namely Washington. Now, it is this spirit 
which is now submerging the white leadership elements uh, in the second reconstruction of the South. It began as a political reconstruction with a long line of Supreme Court decisions about 25 years ago, and then finally, uh, what was it, in the decision of 1954, the desegregation in the public schools, um, um, Brown versus the Board of Topeka uh, up in Kansas, and, and um, uh, so on, and it's been, and it's been moving apace ever since. Speaking of Governor Barnett, the effort to sustain a two-class citizenship in areas of the South, such as in the state of Mississippi, and Mississippi is but one of several states with a largely uh, um, dominant Negro population, this has resulted in a kind of closed society where the white man does not dare to speak out and the search for truth has become a casualty. One dare not speak of it. I experienced this. I happened to be there when uh, uh, Ralph and uh, several others flew down in 1963 um, uh, for the uh, dedication, the rededication of the Illinois uh, Monument, and I experienced uh, four days of it. I experienced a lot of Governor uh, Ross Barnett. This is when I suggested he might try uh, secession. And uh, when I said, to, well, excuse me, I'm only a, a college teacher, he says, well, uh, that explains it, Professor. Um, <clears throat> but I heard in an Air Guard armory at Vicksburg, I could hardly believe this coming from Illinois and uh, then being down in Oklahoma where we've desegregated um, uh, the races already, the Indians and the whites in that area desegregated 150 years ago. And uh, Governor Ross Barnett got up and uh, expatiated at length, length against the federal government. He said Kennedy was yet in the White House. Uh, he said Kennedy has blood on his hands. Here's a reason why we have revolt in this area. He's the reason why we have murders here in Mississippi. And then he pointed to Senator Easterland from Mississippi, and he said, thank God for Senator Easterland, a man who will stand up and defy the federal government. We need more men like you, and 6,000 whites applauded with great vigor. Now, I also uh, noticed that there was one uh, Negro in the, among the 6,000 whites. So I decided I had better go over and look into this situation. I uh, moved up to the young lady of high school age, and I said to the governor, uh, Governor Barnett was speaking this time, I said, Governor, now, uh, I said, uh, lady, what do you think of the governor's uh, uh, comment? Uh, uh, racist speech and uh, she said oh oh uh, immediately on the defensive oh uh, sir this is just fine just fine just fine all of a sudden she said I, I, I said well now I'm from Illinois originally from Oklahoma and I'm this was in the day of the freedom writers and I said I'm not a freedom writer I'm here to make speech and in fact I made it yesterday and um, um, she said oh you're probably wondering what I'm doing here 
all of a sudden she discovered herself and uh, she said oh i'm babysitting the mayor's children he's he's just introduced the governor well this was a situation so then uh, after making this this speech uh, uh, i had come up uh, later uh, a classmate a high school classmate from centralia illinois and invited me out to middle class people like myself uh, uh, and I went out to their, their home. Uh, he was uh, working with their husband, working with the Corps of Engineers. And uh, so, um, sort of Caucasian in background, you know, and, and so uh, I asked him, uh, well, what do you think about this racial situation here that you all face in the South? Immediately he changed the subject. So I tried it again a second time in the course of conversation. Changed the subject again. He didn't want to talk about it. He wasn't in, he wasn't in a white leader, leadership group at all in Vicksburg. Didn't want to talk about it. Couldn't talk about it. Refused to talk about it. So the next day I got with some of the elite leaders, uh, uh, state senators and representatives, and uh, uh, there is no racial problem uh, at all in Mississippi so far as they are concerned. Well, then my, my host was the superintendent of schools. So... He was, he was describing the school situation in Vicksburg, and he looked, over both, he looked over both shoulders and said, Fisher, we're about to have our federal funds withheld. He said, this is an intolerable situation. He says, do you know where I can get a job elsewhere? Well, this is the way it is. This is the way it is in, in, in Mississippi. You don't dare talk about it. You don't dare talk about it as a Negro, and you don't dare talk about it as a white. You just don't talk about it. It's, uh, the, the racial lines are this uh, type. What it amounts to is that without federal intervention, Negro leadership is helpless in Mississippi and many of the other states of the South in trying to improve that race's position there. So the federal government must intervene. It must carry through a second reconstruction of the South, and this is moving apace now. Now, the first reconstruction was a failure. This one is, uh, is a success. The federal government refuses to give up on it, and so it will eventually force, I predict, the white leadership groups out of their positions of leadership in the South and will get the job done. This may take a century, but eventually I feel the federal government will succeed on this point if the same type of leadership succeeds in Washington. And apparently it does, because regardless of the party, after all, our, our President um, uh, Johnson, uh, when a, sen a senator from Texas, voted against the civil, various civil rights bills, but now as a president he finds himself in a position where he cannot. Uh, he must be an avid deseg desegregationist. Any person in that office of president must be an avid desegregationist. In fact, uh, weren't all the candidates at the funeral of the late uh, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King. Now, the Civil War is a period of United States history with the largest quantity of publications. Feature, if you can, a graph of publications, a little mound for the Revolution, really nothing for the War of 1812, really nothing for the Mexican War. And there, here comes the Civil War, a huge mountain 
of publication. Not too much for World War I. People have practically forgotten about my war, the Second World War, and so it, uh, so it goes. But we have not forgotten about the Civil War in terms of what we write about it, in terms of what we put in print. There are today well over 150,000 books on the war. And beginning about 1955, the average number brought out each year has been well over 100. Next to Jesus of Nazareth, more books have been published on Lincoln than on any other person. This interest suggests that the Civil War is without doubt the most thoroughly researched period in American history. And in a way, this is, this is, this is true. But... Considering the national interest in the war, this is, I would like to submit, the area, percentage-wise speaking, where we have the fewest scholarly books and articles. Ninety percent, the fact is, of all publishing on the Civil War today is trash from the standpoint of new historical truth. Now, you brethren are trying in these scholarships to bring about new historical truth. That's what these men are, are probing for. Now, the raw materials for research are there, but it, it takes a lot of hard work. It takes a lot of digging. You know all the digging that, that, that Pete Long had to, had to do for Bruce Catton. This is how much digging it takes, and it takes years, and there isn't much money in this digging, uh, 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 brethren, as you know by this $3,000 scholarship. But it takes it, it, it takes it if we are to ever discover anything new about the Civil War. The fact is, the scholars are there, they're studying the American Revolution, that's the next big centennial course coming up, they're, they're, they're studying the Revolution, they're, they're, they're studying World War I, but they aren't studying the Civil War, except for the encouragement that you gentlemen give them here. Never did. Uh, a centennial emphasis attracts so much public attention, but on the other hand, uh, it was a fizzle in, term, in terms of attracting uh, the attention of people who will get in there like Pete Long and grub, 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 and dig. Now, the, the reason is that scholars like Pete Long uh, um, probably have an aversion to, to research in areas of history popular with the masses. I don't know, somehow scholars want to go into unpopular areas and see what is there. Uh, perhaps also scholars have assigned the, the Civil War to the pulp writers and, and have said to these people who read two books on the war and go out and write one, uh, uh, they, they've said, brothers, just go out and write that damn book and be done with it and we'll go on to something else and uh, uh, get on with that. Uh, so the Civil War, I'm saying here, is largely overlooked as a field of research. We really ought to get into it just as you gentlemen are encouraging these young men to do with your annual scholarships. The fact is, we must rewrite. We must reinterpret the Civil War in terms of today's perspectives. What does it mean to us today? What should be some of these reinterpretations? We need to reinterpret it in terms of race. We need to reinterpret it in terms of civil liberties. We need to reinterpret it in terms of dissension and internal dissent. And we aren't doing this at all, I submit. 
And this is what we need. If we do not do this, the Civil War will have only antique meanings. It will have only the meanings which the original participants gave to us in their memoirs. You and other round tables around the world now find the Civil War cogent with meaning because we've had people like uh, Pete Long. We've had people like Bruce Catton who have tried to reinterpret it. But we must continue this fight or the Civil War will be on the way out and we'll all become antique in the process. Now, the nation's best historical fiction uses the Civil War theme. I have a selective list of readings on the Civil War and Reconstruction uh, issued, well, some years ago, actually, by the American Library Association. In this, can, uh, in this list, the, these are the, the most widely read books, what, what people go after when they go into our public uh, um, uh, libraries. And this contains approximately 150 Civil War and Reconstruction titles. Now, the first great success was um, the book, The Red Badge of Courage, uh, written by 24-year-old Stephen Crank. Yes, even in uh, uh, the, the area of historical research, the young men often do it as they do in the physical and biological sciences. They make the breakthroughs. Well, Stephen Crane uh, did. Uh, this is a great book. This, this book tells uh, of the common soldier under fire in battle. Then in 1936 came Margaret Mitchell's uh, Gone with the uh, Wind. The thing I remember most of, uh, best about that wasn't a very attractive co-ed I didn't take and uh, uh, that I did take to this movie one Saturday afternoon but, but never married down at the University of Illinois in the year, when was it, 1938 when it, uh, uh, when it came out. Well now, Gone with the Wind, of course, was a great movie from the beginning. Uh, it, it took a Pulitzer Prize. Uh, it was a winner of eight Oscars. And I submit, uh, brethren, the great American novel so long sought after. I think we have it. Carl Sandburg uh, um, uh, has... Uh, spoken to us, and he came to Stillwater in his last trip in 1948, and he just, just published his Remembrance Rock, and uh, he was strumming his guitar and looking at it, and he said, uh, there, uh, folks, there must be something in it. There's so much of it. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a great book, uh, I guess, but it is the great American novel because it's largely forgotten about and it's remembered only because it was written by Carl uh, Sandburg. It was not one of his great uh, achievements. Now, uh, here in Gone with the Wind, uh, we have not only a great movie, but a great uh, novel, a story that was uh, told by Margaret Mitchell, who never produced another, uh, a story that was told with rare sensitiveness and uh, uh, skill. We can see the movie again and again, an all-time great. We can read the book again and again. It endures, it lasts. Now, you, you, you asked a, a theorist about novels, and I'm not one of them, uh, and they say, oh, it's a gaudy, it's a kind of Cecil B. DeMille extravaganza. It, uh, it, it doesn't have all of the uh, 
facets that a good novel ought to have. The plot's just not uh, uh, properly constructed. And, and the answer is the hell with it. The American public has loved it uh, all these years and continues to embrace it both north and south. And uh, uh, it, it is a great American novel. And after all, uh, the, the, a, a novel is great because we uh, read it in the end is a way I would interpret it. Now, another uh, Pulitzer Prize went to the Civil War novel, uh, Andersonville by McKinley Cantor, which, uh, which uh, appeared uh, nearly 10 years ago now. A controversial novel, sternly realistic, uh, but uh, 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 one I think that uh, rather well hits the mark. My point, gentlemen, is that the Civil War theme is dynamic enough, seems to me at least, to produce great novels, if not the greatest. And I think we have the greatest novel in Gone with the Wind, the great American novel. Now, perhaps this same conflict produced in President Lincoln, the ablest exponent of American democracy of this last century, I think, of all the history of our nation, actually. A man whose lengthening stature uh, in our national legends dwarfs the figure of the dedicated but now basically unloved George Washington. How many of you thrill to the name of George Washington? How many of you feel warmly toward old George? I submit, gentlemen, that Abraham Lincoln is first in the hearts of his countrymen, not George Washington. Now, too much has been said of Lincoln's mildness, of his magnanimity, and not enough of his tough, forcible, hard-hitting qualities. Lincoln was a man who was often firm. He was sometimes angry. He was a man who had a cunning all his own in dealing with crafty politicians, and they were all around him. Now, when Lincoln pardoned the sleeping sentries, it, it, it was not because um, uh, he was a magna, magnanimous person. True, he was. What's that word mean, Berlin? Anyway, um, uh, he was. He was. He was. He was all of this. But he was a shrewd man. He had a keen mind. He knew that troops were not being raised through conscription. Conscription. Uh, the, the draft was a civil uh, during the Civil War was a war shot, both north and south. Of course. And the only way he could depend upon more men to fill his ranks was through the volunteer system. And he knew that if he uh, had these sleeping sentries executed, that volunteering would be uh, curtailed. And so he dared not. There was more than magnanimity. He had a good mind. He was sharp, gentlemen. Now, look at Lincoln's writings. Let's look at his, Lincoln, let's look at his Gettysburg address for a minute. He didn't say much. He was last on the program, and at the beginning, his talk was not remembered, of course. 286 words, just a few concluding uh, remarks. His phrases at Gettysburg are timeless in their implications, however. They were produced not only for that time when we read them, but they were they've been produced for all the years uh, in between to the present and into the distant future. Look at them, look at them, brethren. Our fathers brought forth a new nation, conceived in liberty, and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated 
can long endure. It is for us to be dedicated here to the unfinished work thus far so nobly advanced that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from this earth. Now I submit that this is suitable scripture for both the Cold War and the hot war that we now have in Vietnam and for, liber for civil, civil liberties extension generally. All that Lincoln wrote was timeless. It will endure forever. Now one of the most important psychological results of the Civil War was the creation of the Lincoln legend. Now this myth began during Lincoln's life and, and, and he rather liked to encourage it. Uh, people began to think of him as a person deeply spiritual. In fact, he would sit there and meditate. Uh, actually, uh, I, I think he was more uh, uh, melancholy perhaps than spiritual. But he meditated. Uh, he would go to his wife's church, uh, New York uh, Avenue in Washington, Presbyterian, uh, never a member of it, uh, however, he would not confine himself so, so um, uh, uh, closely. Uh, then, uh, then, of course, this, this was the image even during his life. Uh, then the, the assassination, uh, he died at the right uh, time, of course, and uh, he seemed to be the typification of American opportunity. Here he was, the Horatio Alger boy, everybody, everything against him, uh, uh, yet he was a man who was bound to rise. He was born the right way. The last person we've had in Oklahoma was the late Senator Robert S. Kerr in a log, log cabin, but uh, uh, Lincoln was born there nevertheless. Uh, study before a flickering fire, uh, riding with charcoal on slabs of wood, uh, walking miles to return a few cents overcharge, all this and more make up the Lincoln legend. Now, Lincoln also seemed to concentrate in himself the heroic essence of the Civil War, uh, the great emancipator. He wasn't this at all, of course, as he viewed himself. He didn't intend to be, but the public thought, he, thought that he was the great emancipator. Uh, they considered him the savior of the Union. This he wanted to be, and this he would be glad to have us say about him today. Uh, uh, he was a kind of peerless leader uh, who proved that the democratic process could withstand sectional uh, treason, a kind of spiritual resource for us to do as we have treason rampant. Why we have wild people on university campuses these days, they're against everything that's established, everything. They come uh, no matter how conservative, middle of the road the institution sponsors them, they're all wild, they're against everything. Of course, we're supposed to have the far-out ideas there, and after all, it was at the, what, the University of Chicago where the atom was first cracked, somebody had to have the far-out um, uh, idea. Well, now, uh, uh, over and over again at the time of Lincoln's assassination, the parallel was drawn between uh, Lincoln and Moses uh, on Mount Pisgah. Every uh, um, uh, minister, uh, uh, every uh, head of a spiritual institution in this nation um, uh, preached a funeral oration. Uh, Lincoln was eulogized over and over again. Now, here was Lincoln and, and, and Moses, uh, um, uh, Moses on Mount Pisgah, each taken away after the hard desert journey, each with a promised land inside. Which, what could be more tragic? Then there were comparisons with Jesus of Nazareth, of course. Lincoln's reputed father was a carpenter. Uh, he could uh, uh, save others, but he could not save himself. And, of course, for posterity, it was a good thing that Lincoln was assassinated on Good Friday. 
Now, Judas appeared in the form of John Wilkes Booth, and both Lincoln and Jesus were crucified. Jesus, people were told at the time, died for the world, Lincoln for his country. When uh, 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 Count Leo Tolstoy, the Russian novelist, a moral philosopher, studied Lincoln, he proclaimed him, and I quote here, the only real giant among all the great national heroes and statesmen uh, of uh, history. He was a Christ in miniature, a saint of humanity whose name will live thousands of years in the legends of future generations. Now, getting right with Lincoln um, uh, is extremely important, and staying right with his um, uh, spirit is very much a part of us today. In Oklahoma, where we're half Confederate, where we're half um, federal, we were, we, were, we were a border area, believe it or not, 80, 89 battles, engagements, and skirmishes, and we missed it all last year on the trip. Uh, of, course, of course, we haven't developed our historic sites. Is a good reason we, we, we haven't. No one's been interested. Second, we can't ever agree because we have, uh, well, Chief McIntosh uh, feels very strongly about his... Uh, uh, grandfather being on the losing side, and uh, uh, so this is a very sensitive matter in our in our uh, uh, midst uh, there. But uh, time and time again, uh, I, I will say to people when we're seated around tables like this, I will say, well, there are only two people in Oklahoma uh, who uh, care the least about Abraham Lincoln, and they're Heine Bass and myself. <laughs> and immediately. These people, now I plant this, I do this deliberately, and immediately these people are on the defensive, and they'll say, well, uh, even the former Confederates, uh, they'll say, well, I, uh, I feel that Lincoln was very significant, and uh, I feel very close to that uh, uh, man. This is a part of this getting right with Lincoln. Uh, since Franklin D. Roosevelt, the major political parties have claimed, and both have, uh, President Lyndon Johnson, for example, frequently compares his tribulations, you've all heard them, with those of Lincoln in television addresses, and he finds satisfaction uh, in the similarity. Again and again, those in public and private life invoke Lincoln. In fact, the white leadership groups today in the South, I would say that these are the present uh, uh, version of many of the former slaveholders. They call upon Lincoln to help keep the races segregated because at one time, this is what Lincoln believed when he was in the White House. They say, Lincoln will help us keep white supremacy in the um, uh, South, as I previously pointed out. Now, the Negroes of the South at the present time, while they inaccurately believe Lincoln to be their emancipator, in believing inaccurately this, they find themselves on the right side of Lincoln. So I submit then that the vast majority of the people in the South are right with the spirit of Lincoln. Now, here in the North, we've always been right with the spirit of Lincoln in this land of Lincoln. Now, the never-fail formula for a successful speech before a business or a professional uh, audience, of course, is to conclude with uh, several quotations from Lincoln. For Lincoln always makes morally and spiritually right, and incidentally dy dynamically effective if your speech is a washout, uh, whatever is said. Uh, now, most of these quotations, uh, uh, while to serve truth and um, the accurate Lincoln, uh, uh, should be correctly uh, quoted, perhaps as many as 50% of these speeches, uh, uh, these quotations are, are, are not, and many, of course, are quoted out of context. 
Now, audiences outside of Lincoln and uh, Civil uh, War roundtable fellowships such as this are not ordinarily capable of, of discriminating between true and false Lincoln quotations, so a fictional quote will usually pass unnoticed. Now, recently my institution, the Oklahoma State University, and its student body of 20,000 was made right with Lincoln. How did we manage it? Now, the university's leading sports editor took care of this very important matter when he wrote in our great metropolitan daily, the Stillwater News Press, we now have a circulation gale of 16,000, and we're very proud of it. Uh, and, and here's what he said. Uh, Abe Lincoln would have been a much better educated man had he been born 150 years later. The old boy from Illinois was a wrestler of considerable local repute. Abe probably would not only have had a chance to go to college, but with his reputation of having thrown all comers during his youth, there is little doubt that he ha would have been offered a wrestling scholarship by Coach Myron Roderick and would have attended Oklahoma State University, the home of the National Collegiate Wrestling Champions. This is a fact. <laughs> now, a friend answered this by saying, <clears throat> Fisher, what difference does it matter? No one cares whether we have the wrestling champions down at Oklahoma State University of the nation or in any other university, the only sport that counts these days is football anyway. <laughs> now, of the three major conflicts of the century now concluded, the Civil War alone killed and mutilated American citizens. It devastated only American property, gentlemen, and it destroyed only the American landscape. More men were killed in battle during this war or died of wounds or disease than all other United States wars from the Revolution through the Korean conflict. Now emphasize, now emphasize through the Korean conflict. A century ago, 618,000 American servicemen died, Confederate and Federals, that is. In all other American wars through Korea, 606,000, a differential of, what, 12,000. Now, what is it today in Vietnam? How many have we lost? Until not more than a year or so ago, uh, we, we had no more killed than 12,000 in Vietnam. What is it now? Is it up to about 22, uh, 23,000, the current figure? The fact was, during the Civil War, that scarcely a family remained untouched, and one in every four servicemen did not return. Now, men died. In fact, Thesis was a, 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 a um, point you were making uh, in our uh, revels out here down the hall, is that uh, the masses of people that, uh, that were killed uh, um, in the wilderness and at uh, Fredericksburg, uh, two of the finest illustrations we, we have. However, I think my example uh, doesn't quite fit that. Uh, uh, no fewer than 63 Union regiments in single engagements sustained casualties of more than 
way up there. The 1st Texas Regiment had losses of over 82%. Think of that, 82% at the Battle of Antietam. And the 1st Minnesota Regiment had casualties of 82% at Gettysburg. And the uh, sergeant who wrote the morning uh, report uh, after the uh, three-day engagement was all over had been shot in the legs himself. Now, by comparison, if you think, well, this really isn't much, um, the, the charge of the light brigade, cannon to the right of them, cannon to the left of them, immortalized by Tennyson, what was this? The charge of the light brigade at Balaclava uh, in the Crimean War. There the casualties, the total casualties, were only 37%. Now, 80% of all Civil War wounds were produced by the single-shot muzzle-loading rifles used by the foot soldiers of the period. These rifles, the 58 caliber Springfield, were deadly accurate. Um, this was not a place to bring a mini-ball, since you all have them. In fact, you, you, um, you sell them at your auction here, do you not? You get the mini-balls, and, and, uh, and then you take them and sell them, and you can buy them wholesale at, uh, uh, well, what, what are they selling for at uh, uh, Fredericksburg now? 50, 35 cents? Yes, yes. Well, Oh, oh, you can get him in a slot machine. Well, well, this gentleman, this is it. Eighty percent of the wounds were caused by that, uh, by that um, uh, mini ball, by that single shot rifle, the Springfield 58, uh, the the Enfield, or, or some or, or some weapon of quite similar uh, caliber, using the um, uh, mini ball. Now, uh, in in recent wars. Uh, uh, the uh, foot soldier fared much better. What was it during World War II? It was the 30 caliber, was it not? And uh, uh, this is what I was uh, uh, trained on, and this is what I carried during the war. But, uh, I mean, this was a very smooth, uh, steel-jacketed bullet, but these mini-balls would spread wide on impact. You, you, you've seen them spread all over the uh, uh, surface of whatever they uh, hit. About... 15% of the wounded died in the Civil War. Just amputate. Uh, uh, true, gangrene would always set in, but this is, after all, where we got a hold of the um, uh, maggot treatment, which we now use in the uh, uh, cure of uh, uh, difficult uh, surgery cases. About 15% of, of the wounded died in the Civil War. By comparison, uh, only 8% in World War I. 4% in World War II, and about 2% in the Korean War. Now, this suggests that a century ago, t uh, killing techniques were far superior to healing methods. Now, where was the Civil War fought? Now, we're, we're all aroused about the Civil War here in Illinois, and, and, we, and this is the first round table in the nation. And uh, uh, wh where are your battlefields here, brother? And they aren't here, are they? Was there a single, I've never heard of it down at Centralia. Oh, there were, excuse me, I stand corrected. I, I, I need to come back to Illinois and get educated on the matter. Charles but, <laughs> all right, anyway, uh, maybe you have a stretch of the imagination. But the, the uh, fact was that Illinois was not ravaged by the Civil War. It was somewhat like going overseas. You went overseas to die, and uh, the family grieved, and the friends, and, and this was largely the end of it. In fact, more and more prosperity, but not so. Where were the 6,000 battles, engagements, and skirmishes of the Civil War fought? They were fought in the South. As the newspaper, uh, newspapers at the time described it, the seat of war, the seat of war. That was it. Now, these physical scars remain. 
And as a result, the major um, uh, battles and those who fought in them are today memorialized, commemorated in 29 national battlefield parks. Some of you have uh, covered them all, not once, but uh, uh, twice. Uh, and then in addition, there are some, uh, uh, quite a variety of national uh, historical locations in addition to the battlefield park. Now, you add to this some 150 state uh, battlefield memorial parks and state uh, historical locations associated with the Civil War, and wherever you go, wherever you go, you find these um, uh, historical locations associated with the Civil War. Now, these Civil War historic sites are today a major source of tourist income in the South, and you are one of the best examples I know of, of contributing money uh, to the uh, second restoration of the South uh, economically. The first having been attempted after the Civil War and failed for some 75 years, now uh, you're, 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 you're helping in the second restoration economically of the South. Uh, and this has been going on now since uh, Vicksburg, for example, and, uh, well, Gettysburg is up north, isn't it? But since Vic Vicksburg was established uh, in the year 1897. So which is to say about 70 years now, the South has been getting some rake off on this destruction which occurred more than a century ago. Now, the Civil War still involves passions. I don't know how you folks feel about it up here, but down in Oklahoma, we can hardly get on with the business of, of developing our Civil War sites because of all the passions involved. Somebody's grandpa, and it's always somebody in an important position, fought with the Confederacy, and they want to forget about the defeats. But we want to develop some historic sites. As, as one of these uh, Confederates uh, described it in uh, talking with me, he said, now, look at it, look at it this way. First of all, um, we have this opportunity for tourism. But most of all, we want to forget about it. And Illinois... <laughs> And, and, and Illinois was one of these areas. I had a grandfather that went with the um, Federal uh, Army, and his brother went with the Confederate Army and never returned. Now, no other period of American history has even one national periodical devoted exclusively to it, but the Civil War has four. Are you aware of this? There is not one journal devoted to any other period of American history. Let's look at it in a Civil War field for a moment here. The Lincoln Herald has a circulation of 1,000, publishes, published by Lincoln Memorial University, not, not very widely subscribed uh, uh, to. It emphasizes research materials on Lincoln and, of course, the uh, Civil War uh, also. Now, Civil War history established uh, uh, by our good pal here, uh, is a quarterly journal devoted to scholarly research studies uh, was, um, and to this date has been published by the, by the University of Iowa. Um, uh, when did you get it underway? 55. 55. Was that it? Now, it has a circulation of 1900, despite the best efforts of you people, uh, almost 2000. Now, I wrote for the figure. And, um, but, for example, this really doesn't reach a vast number of people. It goes into the libraries, but... Uh, you look uh, at Civil War Times Illustrated, and it has a circulation by comparison of 18,500. Now, 
Lincoln lore, which will be sent gratis to you by the, by the Lincoln National Life Foundation of Fort Wayne, Indiana, if you care for it. It has only a circulation of 5,500. But altogether, these reach some 26,000 people, which is to say we keep it stirred up, we keep teaching it, some of it's rehash, some of it's new knowledge, but we keep it moving through these journals. I think that Bruce Catton put it about right when he emphasized, and I'm quoting him here, the Civil War was the greatest test our country ever faced. It was our most profound and tragic emotional experience. What was lost in it was lost by all of us. What was finally gained was gained by all of us. The loss, the gain, and the experience itself are a common national possession. Now I go back to the point of beginning. For these many reasons that I have submitted, I hope these suggest to you why the Civil War has captured the imagination of all of us and the interest of the people of the United States to a degree and with a force not matched by any war or phase of this country's history. I submit then that the Civil War is a mountaintop experience of our American past. Thank you, brother. Leroy, I've enjoyed your remarks tremendously. I'd just like to, uh, out of my own background, substantiate uh, one of the points that you made here tonight, which was that the people of Illinois are certainly, nationally speaking, among the leaders who have uh, contributed to the former uh, rebellious states by our travels uh, uh, into the South. Uh, you may know I've been for some time a consultant on tourism for the state of Illinois, and one of the dreadful things about it is that we in Illinois do not rank worse than third in providing tourists and travelers for any other state in America. You might suspect being associated with this administration that I'm a Democrat, and I am, and I don't very often quote Orville Faubus when I want to make a point, but in this case I think I will give the devil his due at a year when we spent $40,000 in Illinois to promote our travel up here that little old scrub state of Arkansas down there was spending a million and forty thousand dollars. And someone once asked Orville Faubus how it happened that they spent so much on tourism while many northern states, much richer, didn't spend anything like that. And Faubus said, well, if you want to know, I'll tell you. He said, we figured it out down here that one Yankee tourist is worth about as much as two bales of cotton and he's a hell of a lot easier to pick. <laughs> so that's the way that works. Besides Berlin, we don't have a rocket. <laughs> you know. And now the floor is open for questioning or your own comments uh, uh, with respect to uh, the Civil War in today's perspective. Do I see some? Yes. To follow through or your, your theme of uh, a second reconstruction, as you put it here, would you say that the civil rights movement would not have taken the peculiar turn it has in the country today, but for the fact that we're engaged as a nation 
in a greater struggle for freedom outside of the country? That's, that's, a, that's a most interesting and uh, challenging question. I think perhaps this, this, this does have some impact on it. Perhaps it had some impact at the time of the Korean War. Perhaps it had some impact uh, at the time of uh, uh, World War II. But let me make this statement. You know, I referred to the superintendent of schools of Vicksburg, the man who looked over both his shoulders and said, you know, we're about to, even to make the comment, uh, which is a, a fact, uh, uh, that, that the city of Vicksburg about to lose its federal funds for its public uh, schools because it would not submit to uh, de desegregation. And while he said he wanted another job, he said, don't you feel that this present civil liberties thrust, this de desegregation, was all started by the communists? Now, you all think about this a moment. In other words, the communists have looked for our weak spots. They've, they, they've, they, they've looked at the, the total fabric of American society. Now, when the communists said, you are racist in the United States, we could not stand up and defend ourselves as a nation on that point. We admitted in so many words when we moved in the direction of desegregation and equality of the races that uh, we were ashamed of this earlier racist commitment which the United States government sanctioned in the South during the 1890s for you lawyers in the case of Plessy versus Ferguson. Separate but equal. Lincoln said, oh, let those Southerners take care of themselves. President Johnson said, I give up. Let those Southerners take care of the Negro. And finally, the radical Republicans all said, we give up. Let's take those troops out of the South. Let those white leaders, those former slaveholders, uh, take care of those Negroes down there. And so it was, uh, so it was done. So then, then, then we legalized this, this whole matter nationally, which is to say the civil liberties thrust of the Civil War uh, was slowed for a period. And then about 25 years ago, it began to move. And yes, I believe not only this Vietnam conflict, but the Korean War and World War II, I see no relationship um, um, to it coming out of the First World War, but I do out of these last three uh, wars, one, uh, one uh, declared and what, two undeclared. Jerry Washington. Earlier, you, in the speech, you said Lincoln had made the unrealistic move of the Emancipation Proclamation. Now, did you mean unrealistic in the uh, in relation to the times then or to the times now? Well, uh, I meant unrealistic uh, uh, to his uh, way of viewing things, uh, uh, Jerry. He was a he was an attorney. Uh, uh, Charlie, uh, am I right in interpreting you attorneys that you believe in the evolutionary process rather than the revolutionary process and unfolding of developments? Uh, and, and this was uh, this was Lincoln. Uh, uh, what what happened as a result of the of a chain of events which Lincoln set underway in the Emancipation Proclamation? You had let's see. $2 billion worth of property wiped out. Now, that's the equivalent of $10 billion worth in purchasing power today. And in an area which was done in 
uh, economically anyway. The South was done for at the close of the Civil War economically. This is, uh, this is destroying a lot. And then you throw four million people, see, illiterate people, these, these, these slaves uh, on the labor, uh, on the political market, so to speak, and what are you going to do with them in making the transition? So this is what. Now, he didn't want to do this. The radical Republicans, the opposition branch of the Republican, he was a conservative Republican. The, the radical Republicans forced him into this. And so the only way he could fence with them was to give them what they want, wanted uh, uh, in uh, form without giving them what they wanted in fact. And they said, hell no, we don't want this, Lincoln, which was an Emancipation Proclamation that applied only in, uh, to the areas in revolt where it would have no effect, see, except psychological. That's all the effect. As of, Jul as of January 1, 1863, not a single slave went, went, went free. No, but as a psychological point, it was not an unrealistic move. Psych it Psychologically, it was very important, and it set in turn a chain of events which he didn't really want to set, set to start moving. Right, right, okay. Well, he did want to keep France and England out of the war. Me, uh, and the yeah, Emancipation yeah, Proclamation yeah, had right, a hell of a practical right, effect right, in doing that. Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah but when, well, Fremont, well, when Fremont yeah. issued the Emancipation Proclamation, Lincoln was the first man to torpedo it. Yeah, because it he had wasn't no, ready. It didn't right, right, right. right. Now, Lincoln, Lincoln, Lincoln evolved in his thinking on this point during the Civil War, gentlemen. Uh, uh, he, didn't, he was not static. When, when he met the Chicago YMCA delegation of Negroes who came to the White House sometime in 62, I forgot an exact date, and said now, uh, the um, delegation said now, uh, Mr. President, uh, we, would, uh, we want to have certain requests here. Uh, Lincoln said, it's kind of you to come, but he said, gentlemen, we are different. Look at you, look at me. We ought to live apart. Now, I know this is a shock, and I'm sorry to recall this to, in the land of Lincoln, but it is a fact which we must remember about St. Abraham Lincoln. He is our leading political saint, after all, down in Oklahoma as well as in Illinois. And uh, 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 this is a part of the total Lincoln picture, but, but Lincoln changed in his thinking. Uh, he was always dragging his feet on this point. But think of his, his uh, background. He came out of Kentucky, uh, a border area. Who did he have living with him? A southern belle, did he not? Uh, any of you, well, you, many of you have been to Lexington, or, or, or uh, uh, Lexington, Kentucky, and, have seen, and, and saw the old uh, uh, home there, which in more recent days has, uh, was in the red light district. Now I think it's a, a, a modern uh, office building. Preserved, but but um, uh, this was the Todd home in Lexington. He came uh, from a southern. His wife was a southern blue bar. Clyde Wallen, please. What I have is a, a little statement to have you comment on. And I would preface it by saying that uh, Leroy and I are friends of. Now that I think of it, more your standing than maybe either of us ought to admit. Uh, and he is a respected professional in the field of history. I take it many of us study history because. First of all, we're, we, we like to know more about the things that have happened in our country to bring us to the point at which we have arrived today. Many of us would like to think that perhaps by studying history we can help make a better day for ourselves in the 20th century. I would like to submit to you then, to use your own phraseology, that history has played us very false. Uh, that indeed any effort to equate Civil War history with modern times leaves us with uh, bad scars such as the uh, frightful conference in Charleston, South Carolina in 1961, 
or the unspeakable treatment uh, the representatives of the state of Illinois suffered in Vicksburg in 1963. And I saw it. That in, well, I was one of them. And that That's indeed, right, you were there. Uh, I was there. Right. And that indeed, we have learned very little from all of our knowledge of the Civil War in terms of applying it to our problems today. I want you to comment on that. Well, uh, I think so. This is, uh, this is essentially my theme this evening, uh, uh, Clyde. Uh, not only the impact of the Civil War, but uh, uh, here is a dynamic period for us to look to and to learn. Now, I think we must be fishing for, 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 for something, brother. And when, when we assemble in these round tables, I guess I thank goodness because of the time I missed my page on the round tables here. But there are 160 of these uh, in the United States, as you know. This, this being the first in the year 19, in the year 1940. Now, um, uh, we are here because we believe this period is cogent with meaning. I believe that we continue in this fellowship, not because we're a knife and fork club. That, that, that's grand. That, that's, that's really great, and this fellowship is wonderful. But because we are probing for something that, are, that, is, that is here. We are pro probing for meanings for the present. We really haven't mined the Civil War, as you suggest at all, Clyde, in, in terms of present uh, uh, implications. We really haven't learned from that uh, conflict. It was down th this, uh, uh, we're, we're working on a uh, Civil War battlefield park, which we hope will be another um, uh, Wilson's uh, Creek, another Pea Ridge. We want to get in on this complex, too. We have Honey Springs, where 9,000 fought and died, gentlemen. It's better than you did in Illinois. Now, it may seem pint-sized, but, but it's, 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 it's still a pretty good battle. Now, uh, we're trying to get this settled. Now, what was one of the important points there? Now, this is what Chief McIntosh, whose grandfather uh, fought there on the losing side, uh, uh, there were the 1st Kansas Colored Regiment was there and bore the brunt uh, of the initial attack and an abolitionist, Colonel Williams, led him. He said, now, he said, now, gentlemen, he said, today you will prove yourself. There were two or three other points of testing for Negroes, really, whether they could fight as men. Uh, and these Negroes mowed down these Texans and Southern Indians like uh, uh, nobody's business because they were told that there would be no quarter if they were taken. And they were perfect soldiers uh, on, this, uh, on this occasion. This was the, the, the Confederate. Any Negro who dared to raise an arm against a Southerner deserved to die. And they knew what was coming. None of them were taken uh, prisoners on this occasion. This is one reason why this, this battle is, is important. This is when Negroes first proved that they were human beings if given the right environment if given proper education uh, and, uh, and adequate homes, could uh, prove that they were not a sub-race of people. This was proved during the Civil War, but uh, more than a century later, we seem not to have learned this fact, which was a scientific fact at the time of the Civil War. Well, uh, excuse me if, if this may seem a, a bit liberal, a bit extreme for uh, some of you of southern background in Oklahoma, I can hardly make this statement, at least not uh, on this commission that, uh, that, that's attempting to get this uh, uh, Civil War uh, battlefield park established. Yes. 
Yeah. I, uh, I do want to make a comment on one thing that Dr. Fisher said in commending us about these scholarships. Uh, Dr. Fisher is a pro, and Dr. Walton is a pro, and Dr. Don here is a pro in the Civil War field. But actually, most of the work that's being carried on is by groups like this, which is important in my estimation. I've said this before. Some of the good work being done, I'm not going to say the best work, uh, is being done by amateurs, actually, in, in the field, uh, like our president, Dan Lipinski, Lloyd Miller, uh, Minor Colburn here, and Wayne uh, Strockey in his field, Brooks Davis. These calls are the ones who are developing. I don't think we're ever going to be able to develop enough pros in this field, and these fellows are the ones that we're going to have to develop as well to carry on this spirit. This is only a comment. Warren, I, I appreciate this comment more than you know because it gives me the opportunity to say, first of all, that um, none of us are pros. I, I, I don't know where this ever got going, that uh, there is such a thing as a pro in any field of history, uh, including the Civil War, period. Uh, Simply because I, I uh, try to earn a living uh, at teaching history does not make me a pro. Uh, now, the reason I say this is that uh, uh, history has a large public following. Every man is his own historian, and I firmly believe this. And uh, I find I could never conduct what I do, true, I'm the footnoting type of person, nobody really bothers to read it, but uh, um, uh, I, I could never conduct my work in a, in a vacuum. Monthly, I go to the Oklahoma City Civil War Roundtable, which is our, our uh, urban roundtable. True, we have my Civil War class is the Oklahoma State University Civil War Roundtable, but you know, it's a captive audience there. And uh, they're taking it to meet a requirement. Some of them actually, uh, I think, enjoy it a little. But, but um, uh, the uh, fact is that uh, uh, I, I could never work in the Civil War in a, in a vacuum. I need each of you here. I need each of the peop uh, people in the Oklahoma City Civil War Roundtable. Uh, while my work uh, uh, and the work of Pete uh, may be slightly uh, different from, uh, and that of Clyde here may be slightly different uh, because we work, shall we say, with the footnotes and uh, with bibliographies and all that sort of thing, uh, is slightly different from someone else working in the field. And nevertheless, I feel we all make our contributions. And uh, one of the joys of working in the uh, Civil War is that I have all of you, all of the people in the Oklahoma City Civil War Roundtable, the students in my class, and 158 Civil War Roundtables in the United States and abroad. Or is it 157? <laughs> Minor Cobra. I just received today a copy of Virginia uh, Historical Quarterly that our beloved Ambler Johnson sandbagged me into joining the Virginia Historical Society back in 63. And I want to follow out the idea that Warren started. The first three articles in that are on history as an avocation and they're written by 
three directors of the society, Lenora Chambers, who did the Stonewall Jackson, Virginia Dabney. I forgot what the third one was, but they were all on this one idea of history as an advocate. Right. And, and, and I think I prove this point statistically here, that history is a great avocation. In fact, the Library of Congress, I had some figures not recent, a lot uh, available long ago from the Library of Congress, that there is a larger readership in the field of history in the Library of Congress, the same thing in the Oklahoma State University Library, a larger readership in the field of uh, history, and more especially American history, than in sociology, physics, economics, psychology, you name it. Now, what did my statistics prove? My, my, my statistics prove that people like myself uh, uh, who write with footnotes, the sort of thing that Clyde uh, uh, did with his journal of the Illinois State Historical Society in Civil War history, uh, few people actually read these journals as compared with Civil War Times Illustrated. 18,000, and, and what, what's the uh, circulation, for example, of the journal? 5,000 Journal of the Illinois State Historic. That's the same we have it in Oklahoma, too, and we're mighty proud of it with two and a half million people. Uh, Clyde. Maury, <laughs> 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 I, uh, if, if I may, uh, I'd like to make a comment. And uh, this is my next, my last meeting. I think it's the first time I've dared to make a, a serious comment to a speaker. I, uh, I feel strongly about uh, St. Lincoln. And uh, the Lincoln that I know is not at all the Lincoln that you presented uh, uh, tonight, Lurie. I, I know that Lincoln was predominantly, after he took the oath of office, he must be primarily concerned with the preservation of the Union. And I know the Lincoln who said he'd free some or free none or free some and leave the others in. I know that he married a Southern gal. He didn't get along too damn well with her, and maybe that's one of the reasons. But the Lincoln I know also is the fellow who, before he was elected president, had a sharp moral difference with Judge Douglas over the question of slavery. And this, it seemed to me, underlies the debates which made him the leader of the new Republican Party. And whether he carried this into his presidency or not, it got him into his presidency. The point that he made when he told Judge Douglas that, of course, if slavery was right, there was nothing wrong with Judge Douglas's position. But if you believed it was wrong, then you couldn't take the judge's position. You had to take his position and oppose its extension. So while I would agree that the extension of history and the position of the Negro was a secondary issue on this, I am personally quite convinced that Lincoln wanted to free the slaves and that he didn't just have the sign the Emancipation Proclamation uh, as a military uh, device, although it was that, and as an international political device, although it was that, but that he was happy to do this because the freeing of slaves was emotionally what he wanted to do. It fit in with his own moral concept, I believe. I think he was anti-slavery. I, I also believe that, that, uh, that, that we have seen in Chicago here, 
in the Negro Press in Chicago, one of the great journalists of our city. I'm sure you're the gentleman here who read that press are aware of the case that was made here a while ago to the effect that Lincoln was, after all, uh, not an integrationist. He was a segregationist. And they didn't even make as good a case as they could have because they didn't dig up the dope about, you know, the the congressional appropriations to send the people down to that little island and all the rest in the Dominican Republic. That is to say, if they'd been real historians, they could have, they could have made a better case of their own case. I'm, 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 I'm admitting all that. But after we're all through, there isn't any great difference between saying that Lincoln was for the preservation of the Union and saying at the same time that Lincoln was anti-slavery. Because if you don't preserve the Union, you know, in 62 or 63 or 65, most of the Negroes in America remain in slavery. And there's no question about that. They do so remain. So the basic... God, I didn't mean to make it. <laughs> I, I, I really, it's not a chairman shouldn't do this, but I feel strongly about this. Uh, but but the... the, the the full effect of Lincoln's leadership, it seems to me, in the Civil War, has not been done any disservice by those who have interpreted him as being the friend of the Negro, the emancipator, and, and I think that the Negro today, who in a super sophisticated sort of a way is trying to make out that Lincoln was less than that, is doing his own case a great disservice. Now, uh, Gosh, I don't know how I can say, go ahead and kick me around, because I hope you don't, but... <laughs> but uh, this, is a, this is a great performance. This is a great performance. Well, Berlin, I, I uh, think basically that uh, Lincoln was opposed to slavery, and that the man did wish to eliminate slavery but he did not wish to do it as it was actually done. He was a man, uh, again, I don't want to, I've said and made this point about twice, but he was a legalist, a constitutionalist, an attorney. Uh, he simply wished to, first of all, oh, he studied at great length. Uh, he had assembled all kinds of papers, a great deal of uh, research on uh, uh, the matter of uh, uh, the freeing of the slaves, through compensation, uh, purchase in an orderly sort of way, so as not to upset the economy of the South. Do this, uh, have the federal government do this by the year uh, 1900. Uh, this was very important. Then, uh, then as he looked into this, uh, uh, he was constantly thinking, he was probing the idea of colonization of the Negroes uh, outside of the United States. As you say, um, uh, he was a, uh, shall we say, a segregationist. Um, but at the same time, I think he wished to eliminate uh, slavery. But he, I go back to my point, and this is really all that I have said. Uh, you know, you set up a straw man uh, and sometimes hit it hard, uh, uh, Berlin. But really, the only point I was making is that uh, uh, emancipation did not come as he desired uh, and that it was uh, forced upon him by the opposition elements of his own party. 
Well, I, I appreciate uh, your point of view, and I want to say that to me this represents uh, uh, this dynamic spirit uh, in my own state of origin of getting right with Lincoln. This, this, this troubles you, you, you spiritually, and it was a, it was a deep uh, uh, emotional concern as you, as you... This is how important it is to us, uh, gentlemen, getting right with Lincoln. Floyd Miller. Leroy, I, uh, I'm going to raise a little hell with you. Great. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is probably to you a little sophomoric, but it's uh, from my heart. Uh, I got from your talk a few highlights all along the line, more or less belittling the South. Uh, without this South opposition, the Northern Ball Club wouldn't have played a good game. Uh, number two, uh, the thing that you brought in with the implication of uh, tourism in the South is repaying the South for having their land de devastated. Uh, it's far from repaying it. Uh, I think probably if all of us had lived down there and lost our relatives and seen our place burn and everything else and were made destitute and broke, uh, wouldn't have felt too kindly about it. Uh, you admit this. But the thing that I resent the most, the implication you made, uh, I don't particularly like uh, Mr. Lincoln's wife, but she did come from a fine family in Lexington, and the fact that her house now might have been a whorehouse, I can name you more goddamn Yankees whose ex-homes were whorehouses and still are, and you can shake a stick at so you can leave that out. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is, uh, this is what you call uh, uh, loading it a little by uh, uh, saying, what is it you, we uh, uh, speak of, we used to speak of Zach uh, Chandler, the radical Republican, as being club-footed and limping along. Well, what is this? Excuse me, I, with you fine historians here, I'm now properly ori oriented. All right. Okay. Now we now we now we speak of uh, speak of him in this. Now, what does this have to do with what he thinks politically? See, in other words, what did this statement? In other words, it was it was superfluous when I when I threw it in, saying that uh, tracing the history of the Todd home through the last century. This was. Uh, uh, not at all pertinent to the main question. But to get back uh, um, uh, to this uh, matter of uh, somewhat looking with disdain on the South, um, as a student of mine put it uh, uh, the other day, he probably um, brought it into perspective. Here's what he said. Wearing the uniform of a ROTC student will soon be a second lieutenant in the Army. Well, as of May, when he goes into the service, he came up afterwards and he said, Oh, you irritated me to high heaven today. He said, You said we when referring to the federal government. He said, Now, you really weren't being very objective on that point. He says, You may not know it. But he said, see, he said, I come from an old line southern family. <coughs> he said, we've had a Yankee or two in the, in the last century that's married into the bloodline. 
but my forebears were all slaveholders and we're proud of it and we feel that's good blood. I said, well, let me apologize. I'll try to be more objective and speak of the federal government and the Confederate government. You know, in teaching, I can never say the enemy. There, there, is, never, there, is, there, is, never, there is never an enemy uh, involved. I simply speak of the federal government, to the Union government, to the Confederate government, or the Southern or the Northern forces, and then this is, this is, this is objective. Um, but but this, this, this pretty well uh, uh, put it, and I said, well, my, my, my forebears, uh, one uh, uh, Union relative, my grandfather, who survived the war, his brother, who went with the Confederacy, uh, was waylaid and killed while carrying this valuable Confederate uh, payroll, and he said, ah, that's it. He says, you're grateful to your, your, your union forebear because he lived and you wouldn't be here today if it weren't for him. <laughs> well, um, uh, per perhaps uh, uh, that's, that's it. Yes, I, 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 uh, now you have to consider how we in the universities look at this where uh, we think in terms of a hundred years hence uh, desegregation when we'll all after the riots are over, when we'll all and the bloodletting has occurred, uh, and we'll all live happily uh, ever after. If you think we're wild, uh, uh, Lloyd, uh, you ought to hear the sociologists. Uh, um, uh, so that uh, uh, this is this is this is rather this is rather modern. But um, uh, the Southerners have been on the wrong side of history. It all started back, gentlemen, in the, in, in the year 1607, pardon me, uh, 1619, when the first slaves came over on that vessel to Virginia. The year 1619, this is when the problem started. And then the South proceeded to make it right. Uh, in the days before the Civil War, slavery is an a, is a positive is a positive good. I mean, if, after all, abolitionism proceeded in the North, then it got to the Mason and Dixon line in the years before, 30 years or so before the Civil War, when the abolitionists came along and Southerners said, mm -mm, "Wait a minute, look here. This is a pretty good institution, slavery. We worked out a pretty good thing here. The Negroes are happy. Look how we take care of them. We own them. We treat them better than we do our own families, and this is true." Southerners took better care of their uh, slaves because they were property. Uh, uh, on the eve of the Civil War, a slave was worth, uh, 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 called uh, on the slave market, a buck nigger. This was someone uh, 26 to 30 years of age. In the prime of life, you see, the, the prime field hand, uh, $900 to $1,000, to, to $1,200. This was a lot of money. Um, uh, that money then would purchase, what, uh, six to seven times that amount will purchase today. And he would put this, and so this was valuable property. It was a paternalistic system. They were doing the best, on it, but it was unfortunate it came out because the whole world turn of events was against. The, the English not having had slaves back in the British Isles for some uh, hundreds of years, had slaves in, her, in their colonies, however, but in the 1830s, the uh, slavery was eliminated there. Then here we were in the United States as of the 1860s, the last country of any significance. If you're a small enough country, you can get lost even today. But we couldn't uh, then because we were, we, we were growing in, in, in world significance. And uh, uh, so here we, uh, here, we, here we had this despicable situation on our hands. 
Well, slavery, I still feel, despite what many people say, I still think it's a basic and, and the major cause of the uh, uh, Civil War. So then, uh, then after the Civil War, the North give, gives up in the first Reconstruction effort. And in the last 25 years, and more especially in the last 10 to 15, has been on this second Reconstruction effort. Yes, uh, no Southerner would like for me to say, or for any one of you, we pity you. You've been on the wrong side of history since the year 1619. But this is precisely what has happened in the South. The national and international forces, uh, the, and I think this uh, superintendent of schools in Vicksburg was basically right. Did not those communists really get us started? Because when they looked at our weaknesses, they said, ah, this racial problem is a basic one in your country. We think you're wrong. Now, are you right or are you wrong on it? And we admitted some years ago that we were wrong on it. And now it's moved to the point where we really have no choice except to set it right. And that commitment was made a hundred years ago during the Civil War. Gentlemen, this has been an exciting and a provocative uh, presentation by a scholarly and eloquent speaker. I know that uh, Mr. Lipinski and Stewart and Don Russell and half a dozen others have more questions. But I promise Professor Fisher that anybody who asked a question after 9.30 would do it at the bar and buy a drink at the same time. And I'm going to keep the faith, all right? I, I want you to give a hand to the man who gave us one of the finest programs. <laughs>